Well, good evening, Patriots, Freedom Fighters throughout Saskatchewan, across the country, and around the world. Ivy Ink Pen says Jeremy McKenzie was arrested. Yes, Jeremy was arrested. And um, I'm not surprised in the least. Uh, Jeremy is, hello, Evelyn. Hello, Alanian. Marie Jose Godon, nice to see you. Uh, Jeremy McKenzie has an enormous target on his back, um, especially after trolling Pierre Polivare. Patriot Kaz, good to see you. Valerie Ann Foley, good to see you. Evening, Catherine. Uh, so, yeah, do me a favor. Share this out. Um, bust through the shadow banning. Um, we're on Facebook, my main Facebook profile, as well as Mark Friesen PPC and uh, Mark Friesen. Um, it looks like the other one. Uh, and Mark Friesen PPC and Canada First. Also on YouTube. Twitter, DLive, and Rumble. Um, hey, Rob. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, before I dive into Jeremy McKenzie, let me just uh, talk a little bit about the election. Um, yes, I was completely uh, smashed to oblivion in that election. Uh, and, you know, part of it, of course... Uh, is my responsibility. Obviously, I didn't inspire enough people to get out and vote. Um, however, there is voter apathy. There's 12,500 roughly voters, eligible voters in that riding. 8,000 of them decided to stay home. And by making that decision, they handed the keys to the riding to communists. <clears throat> and we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. We wonder why there are litter boxes in school classrooms to accommodate people who identify, kids who identify as furries. Um, we, uh, we wonder why suicide is up. We wonder why there's an opioid crisis because they're destroying our children in our schools. There's no morality anymore. It's just debauchery everywhere. 
and naturally that leads to uh, the crisis that we're in. Not only do we have all these psychological issues being created by this environment, um, but we're not giving our kids, our teenagers, our youth much hope. Hope in owning a house, hope in starting a family and being able to support that family. Uh, and while all of that is going on, everybody seems to be in their own little bubble. Nobody seems, not enough people seem to care that our social fabric is being destroyed from the inside out. Nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to, to give a shit. As witnessed in this latest election a couple of nights ago in Saskatoon, Saskatoon Mewasin, 12,500 eligible voters, roughly, 8,000 of them didn't show up, couldn't be bothered. So I, I wrote a little thing. I posted it on Facebook and Twitter and others explaining why that upsets me so much. It's, it's amazing that I have to explain this, but obviously based on a lot of comments, I have to explain it. Why I'm upset that nobody especially in this insane time that we're in where everything is influenced by an unelected unaccountable foreign entity creating policy for the world that doesn't make any sense to any of us and people just can't find it in them to be bothered to even pay attention to even get off their ass for 10 minutes to go to a voting station and cast their ballot. Here's what pisses me off about it. It's so many thousands of Canadians defended the ideal of freedom and liberty. And that's why I do what I do. That's, that's what I get my sense of duty from because so many before me sacrificed everything so that I could live free. And I lived most of my life very free up until the last few years. And so I do it out of duty and, and honoring those people before me. And they sacrificed everything so that we could vote in a free and democratic society. And so when I see so many people taking that freedom for granted and not exercising their right, that right that was given to them and blow it off because what, there's a baseball game on or a, some sort of sports ball or whatever. I, I mean, this this lack of, of duty, lack of responsibility, 
will destroy our country, will destroy our province. So the good thing is, in all of this, is outside the cities, the cities are in full debauchery mode, full apathy mode, full uh, irresponsibility mode. Um, Saskatoon and Regina are complete jokes. Uh, It's just the way it is. That's the way people want it to be. But the good thing is, the positive thing to all of this, is the people in the rest of Saskatchewan who still have a sense of responsibility, who still have and cherish a sense of self-reliance, self-determination, independence, and community. I've seen it. I know it's still there. It still exists. It's going to be those people in this province that leads this province out of the mess we're in. And it's going to lead the country out of the mess we're in. I'm convinced of it. So, um, you know, that's where that's where we have to inspire and motivate and and bring together people that uh, that cherish those values. And we're going to do it. So myself and Phil Zajac, the leader of the Buffalo Party, are going to embark on a tour of Saskatchewan. Um, It might be broken up into parts because I have some other things going on. Uh, But towards the end of October into the beginning of November, um, we'll probably start and and, and start doing some, some tours and getting the message across because... I'm fully convinced that once rural Saskatchewan understands the policies that were brought forward by the membership of the Buffalo Party, the grassroots of Saskatchewan, uh, and once they understand what those policies are and how important they are to taking back our province and defending the interests of our province, um, I, I think it'll be it'll be a no-brainer for a lot of people. So, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about that. And again, at the end of the day, I, I put things in perspective. Yeah, I was a little salty for a couple of days after that ridiculous election. Um, but I, you know, I, when I put it in perspective, I, and I and I know this, and I knew this before. Um, the chance of me winning in Saskatoon are, are remote given the circumstances, given the apathy, given the, you know, and let's face it within those numbers, it it only took 2,400 votes to get the NDP elected, right? The NDP on, on the other hand is very active. The communists are always very active. They always have an ability to rally their troops So you can guarantee that most of the people in that riding that were voting NDP voted that night. That's 2,400 out of 12,500. So the people that chose to stay home and sit in their ass and do nothing handed over the keys to the communists. So, I mean, you can bitch and complain at everything the NDP is going to do in the next whatever. till the next election, but you didn't vote. So 
you handed the keys to them. It could have been very easily gone in a different direction if people would have just been motivated and inspired to vote. But they didn't. So it is what it is. Apathy kills. And uh, it really sucks. But anyways, again, as I said, I, I think at the end of the day, um, Saskatchewan and its rural folks are going to pull this province uh, out of the mess that we're, that we're headed to. And, uh, and so I'm very excited. I'm very encouraged about how that's all going to play out. Anyways, I, I need to... Uh, one of the reasons I went live tonight is because I wanted to show the interview with Tucker Carlson and uh, a doctor from Belgium, and they're going to talk a little bit about mass formation psychosis. It's really, really important that people understand <clears throat> what happened the last couple of years and why are why are we still seeing people wearing masks by themselves in their car, driving around by, by, or walking down the street with a mask on their face or, you know, continually going for boosters that are killing people um, everywhere. So uh, it's really important that we understand how that happened. And it's not the first time in history. It's nothing new. But before I do that, before I show that that video, I, I do need to address Jeremy McKenzie a little bit and the situation he finds himself in. Jeremy, as I said earlier, Jeremy has an enormous target on his back. And because of that target, he has to be very careful in how he says things because his enemy, our enemy, will use whatever they can to destroy him and people like him and others around him um, because of what he says. Now, I haven't seen the episode. I can't comment specifically on how it, the context of what he said, but the inference was that he threatened to um, I can't even say the word on YouTube. I'll get banned for it. Um, but to sexually assault Pierre Polivare's wife. And again, I don't know the context. I don't know. I understand it was wrapped in a joke. But at the end of the day, uh, you can't do that. You Especially if your name is Jeremy McKenzie. You can't say those things because it's very easy for the Gestapo to charge with uttering threats. Uttering threats is a catch-all for a lot of police. Uh, trust me, I've seen uttering threats on a lot of inmates' jackets um, because they say certain things. And whether it's intended as a joke or not, it doesn't matter. It's how it can be interpreted. It's how it can be um, you know, manipulated for a purpose. And when you have a target on your back that big, you got to be, you got, you just, you can't do that. You just can't, um, call it censorship, call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you're handing it to them on a silver platter and we can't do that. We absolutely can't do that. And I think probably he regrets saying what he said,
um, because the outcome sucks. Now, I mean, whatever, that's his deal and, and uh, it is what it is. Um, but, but we, we have to be more, a little bit more careful in in what we say and what we do. Um, oh, people make me a target all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. They do. Uh, and Todd Lois, uh, but it is my business, Lois. It is most definitely, it's all our business. Jeremy is a leader in this movement. Uh, Jeremy is seen as, as a voice that people follow. So when he exposes himself to this, it, it, it hurts it hurts all of us. And so I I mean at the end of the day he's in control of whatever he says. He consequences that come is is his responsibility. But when you have a bunch of people that follow you um I I just at the end of the day I don't want to see Jeremy go to jail. Is that a bad thing? And they're going to use whatever they can to put him in jail. So I'm suggesting he just be careful in some of the things that he says because they're going to use it against him. And now he's in jail. And he does us no good in jail. So it is my business. Of course it's my business. It's everybody's business. Don't tell me what my business is. I'll decide what my business is. <coughs> yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, yeah, fucking round alcohol and, and FYMM attitude is not good with a bullseye. No, it's not. You gotta, you gotta be a little bit, I don't know. Discretion is the better part of valor is all I'm saying. Um, and again, uh, you know what? I'm not telling Jeremy what to say or what to do. I, I, it, he's, he's his own man. He'll do what he says. He'll do what he does. Um, it's all good, but I would prefer to see him not in jail. And I think his girlfriend would prefer to not see him in jail too. And there's ways to avoid that. So it is what it is. It's, it's not something I would have said um, because I have a target on my back too. So, uh, but anyways, it is what it is. Somebody asked me, so I thought I'd, I'd let you know how I felt about it. Uh, other than that, um, yes, somebody asked, I thought you were going camping. <laughs> yeah, I am but not till the uh, 12th of October. We're, uh, we're actually going to canoe Kootenai River, which is going to be interesting because this time of year, the water level is going to be very low, um, which, you know, make the rapids a lot less wild. But there may be portions of the river that are shallow. We might have to uh, line our canoe down or whatever, but... And it's going to be a little chilly, right? Middle of October in the mountains might be a little chilly. But uh, it's still, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And so we're going to do it myself and Sean Taylor. And we're going to film the whole thing, as I do with these excursions. And it's really the first big excursion I'm going on since my little experience. Um, yeah, 100%, Arby. 100%. 
Uh, yes, he has been arrested. Yes, he was arrested. He's uh, currently in jail. Uh, Rennie Fisher, apparently you like communism? Uh, no. Uh, Ronald Craddock. Um, Ronald, I do support Jeremy. Um, Jeremy, most of the time I agree with everything he says. Um, sometimes he says things that I wouldn't necessarily do myself, but that's for me to decide. Um, that's his way. And most of the time he's bang on. Most of the time he's 100%. Um, sometimes he isn't. That's my opinion. And in this case, I think he was wrong, especially with the size of the target on his back. Anyway. Uh, but yes, but Renee, here's the deal. Uh, when you have a target on your back, uh, before I go on, don't agree with what Jeremy said, but being put in jail for something he said is way beyond free country. We don't have any more if you haven't noticed. Yes, but you have to understand the law and how they're going to use it against people like Jeremy. Uh, and this is this is the point of the whole thing. If you give them this on a silver platter, there is a law in the criminal code called uttering threats. And if you hand it to them on a silver platter, they're going to use it against you. So try to avoid that. I'm not going to threaten anybody with physical harm of any description on my live stream. Because you can bet dollars to donuts that somebody's going to take whatever I say and apply it to whatever law they can to then put me in jail, shut me up. So all I'm saying is don't give that to them. That's what it is. There are laws against threatening people. So don't give it to them. Free speech also comes with responsibility. And I would prefer to see Jeremy not in jail. I think Jeremy would prefer to see Jeremy not in jail. So uh, how to stay out of jail is important. You gotta have some discretion. You, you absolutely have to. You can't. You can't just say whatever you want and, and think that there isn't going to be a consequence, even if that consequence isn't jail. You respond. Everybody's responsible for what they say and do. And sometimes what we say has consequences, and you have to be careful, especially if you're if you're handing it to them on a silver platter, you know, and, and, and potentially, you know, breaking laws. Don't, don't give it to them is what I'm saying. I know you do. I know you do. Listen, I'm not happy about it either, but they're going to use whatever they can 
to eliminate as many of us as they can. That's just how this works. So we can't we can't just you know hand it to them. We can't do it. Anyways, that's that's enough of that. So uh, yes, we are going camping, and uh, I'm looking forward to it myself and Sean Taylor. We're going to film the whole thing. There might be some political parts to it um, that will share you know on other platforms but most of it's going to be on my grizz outdoors platform uh on youtube and uh and facebook and twitter so anyways looking forward to that It'd be nice to just have some downtime get out of the arena for a little while uh but then of course when i come back i'll just get right back into the arena because that's what i do anyways a lot of what we dealt with the last couple of years is explained in a video that I listened to just today um, because I was so busy with other things. I didn't have time to to uh, really watch other things. And But this was this is a really, really good video and a really good discussion that I want to share and make sure that others share it and watch it because it's that important. Because um, it's important that we understand what we've been through the last couple of years and why people reacted the way they did and why they made decisions how they did. Um, so I'm going to play that and, uh, and enjoy and make sure you share it out. I'll put the link in here as well. Welcome to Tucker Carlson. Say things have changed so fast in the United States that it's hard to understand exactly what is happening. And one of the reasons it's hard to understand what's happening is that we don't have words for what is happening. You can't understand something unless you can describe it. Words are the first step to understanding. So the country became, began to change in very obvious ways right around the time George Floyd died. Memorial Day two years ago in Minneapolis. And all of a sudden, you saw large groups of people acting in what seemed to be perfect synchronicity with one another as one, and then trying to enforce a uniformity of opinion on the rest of the country. And the rest of the country, for the most part, went along with it. Nothing like this had ever happened in America, certainly not in our lifetimes. What were we watching? Something new and different, for sure. Also something self-evidently threatening, to our most basic freedoms and to our human dignity. So what was it? Well, it wasn't really until December of 2021 in a broadcast of the Joe Rogan Experience that a doctor called Robert Malone described in words what we may have been watching. Here was that clip which instantly became famous. What the heck happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s? You know, very intelligent, highly educated population and they went barking mad. Um, and how did that happen? Um, the answer is mass formation psychosis. When you have a society that has become decoupled from each other and has free-floating anxiety and a sense that things don't make sense, we can't understand it, and then their attention gets focused by a leader or a series of events on one small point, just like hypnosis, they literally become hypnotized and can be led anywhere. 
So Malone goes on to attribute that idea at the core of his description, something called mass formation, to an academic in Belgium called Matthias Dismet, who wrote a book on it, actually, called The Psychology of Authoritarianism. I want to put a quote up on the screen that gets to the nut of what he's describing, and we're quoting. Mass formation is, in essence, a kind of group hypnosis that destroys individuals' ethical self-awareness and robs them of their ability to think critically. This process is insidious in nature. Populations fall prey to it unsuspectingly. To put it in the words of Yuval Noah Harari, quote, most people wouldn't even notice the shift toward a totalitarian regime. We associate totalitarianism mainly with labor, concentration, and extermination camps, but those are merely the final bewildering stage of a long process. So those words come from, as we just said, a Belgian academic called Matthias Dismat, we are honored to have join us on the set now to describe what all of us have been watching for the last two years. But Professor, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Is it a little strange to find out that you're famous in the United States? For yes, a little bit, a little bit, yes, yes. So would, 10 years ago, I think this would have been considered a kind of esoteric academic theory, you know, relevant to your specific study, but not really relevant to the society that we live in. And all of a sudden, you've so perfectly described what the rest of us have been watching. So... Before we get into it, if you just tell us who you are and where you're from and how you wound up concluding this. Uh, yes, well, I'm I'm from Belgium, as you said. I'm yes. a, a professor at a, in clinical psychology at Ghent University. I also have a master in statistics, and that's actually how in I statistics in statistics. Yes, huh. yeah, I did a PhD on methodological problems in academic research. I started my PhD in 2003 when it became clear that up to 85 percent of the academic papers is seriously flawed. That's what uh, my PhD was all about. And then, when the corona crisis started, I immediately started to study the statistics a little bit. And I immediately got the impression that the mathematical models and the statistics that were used dramatically overrated the dangerousness of the virus. And then, in my opinion, a few months later, uh, by the end of May 2020, this was actually proven beyond doubt. At that yes. moment, uh, the, the initial mathematical models on which the corona measures were based, uh, the models issued by Imperial College, uh, predicted that by the end of May 2020, in a country, in a small country such as Sweden, about 60,000 people would die if the country didn't go into lockdown. And Sweden didn't go into lockdown, and only 6,000 people died. And at that moment, for me, I, in, in the first uh, week of the corona crisis, I published two opinion papers uh, in which I tried to warn people that there was something dangerous out there. And I wasn't referring to the virus. The, the, the title of the first paper was The Fear of the Virus is More Dangerous Than the Virus Itself. And... And that's it. And so it's really important to put context to why they did this. And if you look to the agenda, the 17 goals of sustainable agenda, sustainable development agenda, if you look at all 17 goals and what they want to accomplish and what they're going to have to do to accomplish those goals, is to institute a worldwide totalitarian authoritarian regime. That's what they have to do in order to achieve these goals. That's what they have to do in order to socially engineer and condition the masses 
for what's yet to come. Climate lockdowns, climate emergency, crisis. The world's going to light on fire. We're all going to die. Even though their policies within this agenda are going to kill hundreds of millions of people. So we have to understand and put this in the context of why they're doing this, why they're hypnotizing people around the world, why they, why they need to do this. It's important that we understand that. Okay, I'll shut up. And strangely enough, I tried to show people in what way the statistics were wrong. But nobody really seemed to care about it. And everybody, con everybody continued to buy into the narrative. And even when, by the end of May 2020, it was proven beyond the shade of a doubt that the mathematical models had been dramatically wrong, the narrative continued. And the society continued to behave as if the mathematical models had been right. And that was the moment for me when I switched my perspective. At that moment, I decided to focus on the psychological mechanisms that could explain why an entire society couldn't see anymore that the narrative they believed in was blatantly absurd in many respects. And I, it took me one or two months before I could, in my opinion, pinpoint it and before I started to understand that what we were dealing with was a large-scale process of mass formation, which is like a kind of group formation which has, a very, which has some very strange effects at the level of individual psychological functioning. The most important being probably that people who are in the grip of such a process in one way or another lose all capacity to take a critical distance of what the group believes in. And this can go extremely far, like during the revolution in Iran in 1979, um, people which was a large scale process of mass formation in Iran, people started to believe that the portrait of the Ayatollah, whom they considered, considered a leader, was printed on the surface of the moon. And when there was a full moon in the sky, it typically were standing in the streets showing each other where exactly you could see the portrait of the Ayatollah. That's the first strange effect at the level of individual psychological functioning of a process of mass formation. A second one? And, and, and Iran in 1979 was not a backward remote country. It was a very westernized, very well-educated, sophisticated country. Of course, the level of education doesn't play any role, even not the intelligence. Even more, the higher the level of education, the easier, the more vulnerable people are for mass formation. Okay, cool. let me just back up. I found that really interesting and explains a lot of things. The more educated you are, the more vulnerable you are to formation psychosis. <laughs> Why? Because you've already been indoctrinated. You've already, the process was already started through people's experience in university of just following, getting along to go along so they can graduate. It's why, it's why Leslyn Lewis writes her dissertation that sounds like it was written by the UN in 2018 for her master's. And then in an election campaign running for the leadership of the Conservative Party, she essentially stands against everything she promoted while at university. So 
it's very easy, and I get it. And it's this guy's one hundred percent right because people have already gone through the indoctrination. Their their mind has already been sort of prepared or made malleable to what the state is is doing and saying. And this is why. And then you add in arrogance and add in ego to doctors who have these degrees, you know, it's no wonder that they can't come off what, what they've been taught and what they've been told, because that would destroy their ego. It would destroy their, their, their views. And so here we are anyway. A step. So you said in 19, rather in 2003, you begin your PhD and your main focus was the fact, and you described it as a fact, that 85% of academic papers had serious flaws within them. Yeah. No, 85% is the overwhelming majority. Yeah, and any, ac academic papers are the basis of academia. So, I mean, that's a shocking. So maybe, maybe that was the first example you saw of mass formation because how could they not fix that? Yes, well, I, I published a small book about that in which I tried to show in, an, in a very tangible and concrete and simple way why most research methods impossibly can lead to valid results. And what I noticed was my, my examples were really clear and tangible. Everyone who wanted to see it could see that the methods could only lead to flawed results. And to my surprise, only about 5% of my colleagues wanted to open their eyes and wanted to see what I was showing. And the rest wa didn't want it. And that was the moment yes. when I started to think about what could possibly explain why people became so blind. And that was the moment when I first started to be interested in mass formation. And exactly the same process repeated itself in the corona crisis. I immediately noticed, like, look, these statistics and these mathematical models can be right. I tried to show it, didn't work, and then started to think about what psychological processes could explain that. And I stumbled upon, or I, 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 uh, I tried to re-articulate my theory on mass formation in public space then. Wait, we had the same experience what, uh, exactly in the United States in the, the, on the show in the spring of 2020. It became clear that the original Imperial College predictions, which were the basis of our public policy here in the United States, were completely wrong. And nobody cared. In fact, no. you reacted with hostility if you pointed no. it out. Absolutely. What, Absolutely. So, okay, so... Um, just the predicate here, the background. You pointed to 1979 as an example where this happened in another country with a large group of people. Mm. Is this a feature of history? Have we seen this a number of times? M mass formation has existed as long as mankind exists. So there, like, like we have, we've had uh, the Crusades, the witch hunts, the French Revolution, then the, the yes. mass formations in, 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 in the Soviet Union, the mass formations in Nazi Germany. So it has existed as long as mankind exists, but for a specific reason the mass formations became stronger and stronger and stronger throughout the last few hundreds of years. And that's interesting because it's because the in, the in the first half of the 20th century, the masses became so strong that led by certain leaders, they could seize control of the state apparatus. And that's how totalitarian states emerge. Yes. Totalita totalitarian states, Hannah Arendt says, are always a diabolic pact between the masses and their leaders. It's a diabolic pact between the masses and their leaders. And in this way, like a completely new kind of state emerges, which is completely different from a classical dictatorship. In a classical dictatorship, there is a small group of people, a dictatorial regime, 
who has such an aggressive potential that people are so scared of them that they can impose unilaterally their social contract to the to the to society. Yes. But the totalitarian state emerges in a completely different way. In a totalitarian state, there is first a process of mass formation, which is a process through which uh, a certain part of the population, usually about 30%, fanatically starts to believe in a certain ideology. And this phenomenon can be created uh, uh, artificially through indoctrination propaganda. And, and just to pause, you think that number can be as low as 30%? Yes, usually it is not higher than 30%. Yes. That's scary. That's scary because, yes, but there's always 60 or 65% of the people who do not really go along with the narrative, but who will never speak out, who will always choose the easy way and go along with the people, with this group of people that seems to have the loudest voice. And that's why in the end, up to 95% or even sometimes even more. So, <clears throat> guess what? That's why I love you people so much. That's why I love the people in the freedom movement, even, even the people I disagree with for whatever reason. It's the people that stood up against all odds, that stood up against this whole wave of insanity. But we did it. We all did it. And and I don't know what the percentage is now. It's a lot higher than it was. Um, but we did it. And, and we're the ones that history is going to look back to and give credit to for saving whatever we end up saving, whatever's left af after all of this. Because it only takes a certain percentage of people to oppose this. And we've done it, and so many people have come together and done it across this country, that there, there is still enough of us that opposed all of this insanity uh that we were able to build off that and we are continually to build building off that and uh they're gonna have a hell of a time succeeding i mean remember again why they did this why they used covid i mean klaus schwab told us in his book covid19 the great reset they're using this pandemic pandemic to achieve the goals of sustainable development. He told us this in his book. Trudeau told us in the, in the fall of 2021, he told the world they're using COVID to achieve the goals of sustainable development. And then his deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, said the same thing. They're using this as an opportunity to achieve the goals of sustainable development. We know this. Other leaders that have sold out their nations to this agenda have said this. It's just so incredibly important that we have come together, even at the beginning, if it was 5% or 10% or 15 or 20, whatever it is now, or 30, whatever it is now, that we did what we did against all the pressure against us. To, to fight against this. It's just so fantastic that there was enough of us to form this opposition. Uh, it's just such a beautiful thing, which is why I've always said, what a what an incredible 
<coughs> incredible time to be alive. Here's an opportunity for many of us to defend our way of life, to defend the values of freedom and liberty and justice and equality under the law and sovereignty and prosperity and truth. And I mean, there isn't a higher calling. There isn't a higher purpose than to oppose totalitarianism, authoritarianism. There isn't a, there isn't a higher sense of duty. And so anybody who's in this fight, man, you, you, you have my full and complete respect. Uh, even if I disagree with some of the things you say to do. <laughs> it's just, I love every one of you so much. Uh, anyway, I'll shut up now. Go along with, uh, with the totalitarian narrative, with the narrative that led to the mass formation. And there is then an additional 5% that doesn't go along with it, that tries to speak out. And, that, and that's extremely important. If you understand the mechanism of mass formation, if you really understand it, then you know what this small group should do. If it makes the wrong analysis, it will be destroyed in the end. The chance is very high that it will be destroyed. If it, makes the, if it starts from the correct analysis, it will survive. That's why it is so extremely important to understand how this mechanism works. Because I've just mentioned that mass formation makes individuals completely blind for everything that goes against what the group believes in. But there is two other characteristics that are also extremely important. And the first one is that when people are in the grip of mass formation, they seem to lose all awareness of their individual interests. They are prepared to radical, to radically self-sacrifice. That's extremely strange. And then the third... Sorry. <laughs> Let me do that again. Uh, Maria. Maria says he blames masses, not elitist propaganda. Uh, because the masses are to blame, Maria. It is the masses that went along with this. Yes, do. And he's, he'll be the first to tell you through propaganda and fear. That's how he, they do this. But at the end of the day, it is the people when you have 90% of the people falling for this, and he's not demoralizing the freedom movement at all. He's educating us so we understand exactly why so many people were able to be hypnotized and indoctrinated and, and led by the nose through fear and turned into sheep. We have to understand how they did this so we can defeat that. Uh, it has nothing to do with the more. You can't just lie to people and tell them, yeah, it's all because of the elites. No, it's not. There's a reason why 90% of the people agreed to this at the very beginning. And there's still people driving around with masks on their face in their car by themselves. 
and walking down the street with masks on their face and going to get their boosters. There's a reason for that. We need to understand what that reason is because the more we understand that, the more we can put together a plan to defeat it. So I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Uh, anyway, carry on. Characteristic which is the most problematic is that people in a mass formation become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. Yes. And in the ultimate stage of the mass formation, they will typically start to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with the masses, and they will do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. To refer to the, friend, to the uh, revolution in Iran again, I was talking to this woman in Iran, Sharif um, Ishtali, this conversation is available on the internet, and she told me how she has seen with her own eyes how in the last stage of the mass formation, a mother reported her son to the state, how this mother hung the nose around the neck of her son when he was on the scaffold. And when he was hung, she claimed to be a heroine for what she had done. That's the end stage of mass formation. And this end stage- A mother killing her own son. Yeah, that's, and, and if you understand the mechanism, as I explain it in my book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, it's perfectly logical why that happens. But. And that's why it is so extremely important. This last stage of mass formation can be prevented if the small group who doesn't go along with the mass formation makes the right choice. It has to make the right choice. It has, and then this choice has everything to do with whether it will choose to speak out or whether it will remain silent. If it doesn't speak out, it will be destroyed because the masses will move to the last stage. So it's just quintessential for this group to continue to speak out in a honest, sincere way. And all this follows from the mechanism of mass formation. If you understand it, we'll see why, the, pe why the, the people who do not go along with it have to speak out. And that's what they explain in my book. I will have this phenomenon of mass formation, which is a kind of group formation, emerges under very specific conditions. So like the first and the most important condition is always that many people have to feel socially, have to feel disconnected from their natural and social environment. And that was definitely the case just before the corona crisis started. The number of lonely people peaked. Up to 40% of the population worldwide reported not to have one meaningful relationship and to only connect to other people through the internet. And from this follows a second condition. If people feel disconnected from their natural and social environment, they will typically start to struggle with lack of meaning making. To give an example from the situation just before the corona crisis, 60% of the people worldwide reported that they considered their job to be a so-called bullshit job. That means a job without purpose or meaning. And in this state, if people feel socially disconnected and they feel a lack of meaning making, they will typically start to suffer from something very specific at the affective level. They will feel confronted, they will be confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression that is not coupled to a mental representation, a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression in which people don't know what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that state is extremely aversive. If you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, you have the feeling that you cannot control your anxiety. If you feel frustrated and aggressive, and you don't know what you feel frustrated and aggressive for. You cannot take it out to someone and all the frustration and aggression piles up in your psychological system and leads to a certain very aversive tension. And in this state, if the population is in this state, 
something very specific might happen. If, under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and at the same time providing a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, for instance, the lockdowns to deal with the virus, concentration camps to deal with the, with the, with the, with the Jews, witch hunts to deal with the witches, and so on. If, under these conditions, a narrative is distributed, disseminated through the mass media, indicating the subject of anxiety and the strategy to deal with it, then there might be a huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd this narrative is, simply because, in this way, people feel that they can control their anxiety. They feel that they have something to direct their frustration and aggression on. So that's the first extremely important step. And then follows the second one, which is the really dangerous step. Because so many people participate at the same time in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, they feel connected again. It yes. Is, it is as if their loneliness disappears. They feel full of solidarity. And that's the point. They have the feeling that they fight this collective. Well, so what did they do? They released video clips and footage out of China of people falling in the street, dying, creating all this fear and hysteria. And then what did they say? We're all in this together. Everyone got to get this sense of belonging and to fighting a common enemy. It's it's the same thing. They use it over and over. They recycle it. And the masses are very vulnerable to it, and except for a few of us that aren't, uh, for whatever reason. Thank, thank God. Collective heroic battle with a virus, and they will consider everyone who doesn't go along with them as an egoist, as someone who lacks all solidarity. And that, in itself, the strange thing is, you could say, well, what's the problem? People felt lonely, and now they feel connected again. So what's the problem? But there is a problem. Because in a, a mass is a group that is formed not because people connect to each other. A mass is a group that is formed because each individual separately connects to the collective. Meaning that the famous solidarity of the masses is never a solidarity with other individuals. Right. It's a solidarity with the collective. And the longer the mass formation exists, the more everyone, everyone demands that everyone sacrifices all his personal interests for the collective. And that's exactly the reason why, in the corona crisis, for instance, everyone was talking about solidarity. So when I talk about, you know, this whole idea that the fascists have been categorized as far-right extremists, is hogwash. Fascists are right beside communists. They're all totalitarian. They're all authoritarian. They're all big government. Daddy knows best. Government knows best. Dictating the terms of your life. That's exactly what the collective is. That's why the collective, the communists, the fascists are so dangerous because it destroys the idea of the individual, the individual freedoms that Western civilization was founded on. 
the best civilization humanity's ever known. But people are sucked into this idea of collectivism because they get to disappear from being an individual and having responsibility as an individual to leaning into this disappearing as an individual into the collective blob. So you get this whole organism on the left, hard left, communist left, fascist left, where everyone isn't an individual, they're part of the collective, they're part of the blob, where they have no responsibility, where they just, they have no identity, really. Um, they just, they turn into the blob. And that's why it's so disgusting and so, and so dangerous. Because, and, and, and when they're talking about, you know, the greater good, well, this is, they're, they're trying to destroy your individual freedom for the greater good. And, and that's just so dangerous. I mean, any time totalitarianism or authoritarianism has, has risen, it's responsible for the deaths of millions, hundreds of millions of people. How is that in any way a good thing? Unless... Of course, you have a depopulation agenda. And I'll get turfed off of YouTube for all that and probably Facebook. But anyway. <laughs> and at the same time, we accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, we were no longer allowed to help him. At the same time, we accepted that if our father or mother were, father, uh, our parents were dying somewhere in a nursing home, that we were no longer allowed to visit them. So it was all, everyone had to sacrifice everything for the sake of the collective. So mass formation is extreme collectivism. It's extreme collectivism. It's the balance between individualism and collectivism that goes completely in the direction. But there's no actual, I mean, but at the same time, the people who encourage it discourage the formation of individual relationships between people. Always. So the government in this country, the Biden administration was encouraging children to turn in their parents to law enforcement if they said something that deviated from the explanation from the corona narrative yeah. online. Yeah. So they're breaking apart solidarity between people. Of course. Of course, that there's always a feature of it. That the strange thing is that this happens spontaneously in every group which has an extremely strong group identity all the energy will be sucked away from the bonds between the individuals. For instance, in a military commando, if they have to do something dangerous, they will typically demand that there are no sexual relationships between the members of the group. Right. Simply because this relationship between the members, this strong relationship, could threaten the group in a, right. dang in a dangerous situation. Right. These members could choose for each other instead of, in, instead of for the group. So that happens in every group with a very strong group identity. Uh, spontaneously and in a mass to an extreme extent, in a mass, all solidarity, all the love between the individuals is sucked away and it's all injected in the, in the love between the individual and the, and, the, and the collective. And that's why in the end, even the strongest bond, the bond between the mother and her child, completely impoverishes and even mothers report their sons to the state and get them killed if they, if they, if they feel that they are not loyal enough to the state. So it's a natural, natural. It's a psychological process that is very logical, but that is extremely dangerous. 
And that's exactly right. We have to try to understand it and we have to try to understand what we can do about it. So what we can do about it, first of all, the hair on my arms is standing up because you've so precisely described what we've all just seen. I mean, precisely. Mm. Because it sounds like this is a feature of human nature. People are this mm. way always. Mm. Can you think of examples where mass formation was stopped before it became totalitarianism by a small group of people standing up and saying no? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, the, f the first totalitarian systems in history were the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in, yes. the, in the first half of the 20th century. And, but there were trends towards totalitarization yes. at several places in the world. And in most places, they stopped. Well, all through Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, they stopped. And the, the, the reason, the problem in, in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany was that the resistance at a certain moment decided to go underground and to stop speaking out in public space. That happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union and around, around 1935 in Nazi Germany. And within six months in both countries, the destruction campaigns started. Within six months, the destruction campaign started. So there is a, a almost perfect correlation between the resistance uh, that stops to speak out and the start of the atrocities and cruelties in a country. Simply because if you understand the mechanism, then you know like mass formation is, ex is, a, is a kind of hypnosis. It's identical. It's exactly the same. In a hypnotic procedure, there is someone, a hypnotist, who focuses the attention of someone else on one aspect of reality. For instance, an object that is swinging on a chain or something. And once the attention is focused on that one aspect of reality, all the rest of reality disappears. All the rest of reality, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore. For, and this mechanism is extremely strong. You can, a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to focus someone's attention so much on one aspect of reality that the person won't notice anymore that there is a surgeon who cuts through the skin, through the flesh, the flesh even straight through the breastbone, to perform an open heart operation. That happens all the time in a university hospital in Belgium. There is a professor, Elisabeth Femonville, who uses this simple procedure to focus a patient, patient's attention on something, and then the surgeon can, do no matter what he wants, cut through the breastbone, the, the, the patient won't notice it. So that's the, the power of this mechanism of, focus, of the focusing of, that, of attention. Exactly the same happens in a mass formation. First, People start to deal with all kinds of emotions that are no longer coupled to mental representations. And then all, the, all these emotions, all this anxiety are focused on one point. And consequently, the people don't notice anymore that they lose everything, that they lose their health, their wealth, the future of their children, and so on. That's exactly what happens in a mass formation. So once you understand that the mechanism of mass formation is a kind of hypnosis, you understand that it is a phenomenon that is always provoked by the voice of someone, the leaders of the masses who use indoctrination and propaganda to continue the mass formation. And then you also understand that if you want to disturb the mass formation, then you have to continue to speak out, that the dissonant voices have to continue to speak out. If the dissonant voices, if the people who do not go along with the masses continue to speak out, they won't succeed in waking up the masses Sometimes someone will wake up, but usually the people will continue to be in the grip of the mass formation. But that doesn't mean that their speech has no effect. Not at all. Their speech will constantly disturb the hypnosis to a certain extent, and it will prevent the hypnosis 
to become so deep that the people become convinced that they have to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them. From the 19th century onwards, scholars like Gustave Le Bon have described that, that the people who are not in the grip of the mass formation have, that their speech has exactly this effect. It doesn't wake them up, but it disturbs the mass formation and it makes sure that it doesn't go so deep that the masses start to commit atrocities. And in this way, that's a, from a strategical point of view, quintessential, in this way, what will happen is the following. The masses are always self-destructive and they will slowly exhaust themselves. They will exhaust themselves and destroy themselves before they destroyed the people who do not go along with them. So once you understand that, you understand that the first and foremost strategical principle that you have to follow is that you have to continue to speak out. And at the same time, it's also an ethical principle. As a human being... Yes, it is an ethical principle. It's an ethical principle. As a human being, you have the ethical duty to articulate these words that seem sincere and honest to you, no matter what the consequences are. And if you do that, we have numerous examples described by Solzhenitsyn, by uh, Primo Levi, by Viktor Frankl. If you do that, something wonderful will happen. If you stick to your ethical principles, when the world dehumanizes, you go through a very fast process of mental evolution. A very fast process of mental evolution as a human being. You start to become stronger, and stronger and stronger as a human being at the mental level and sometimes even at the physical level. If you read Solzhenitsyn, he, he, he gives us wonderful examples of how in the gulags, um, uh, most people started to act in a beast-like manner. Yes. But there were some, a small minority, who went in exactly the opposite direction, who in this pool of darkness chose to try to represent humanity and who became more and more determined to stick under all conditions, no matter how difficult it was, to their ethical principles. And Solzhenitsyn gave, gives these wonderful examples in which he describes how these people very often survived the concentration camps and became even stronger while, all, while, while most others died within a few weeks or a few months. Of course, it's, no, it's not a guarantee. But I think that if we understand that, we understand that the process of mass formation and everything that happens now, in a certain way, has meaning and purpose. It should motivate us to understand the value of ethical principles for a human being. It should make us more determined to continue to live according to ethical principles while the rest of the world leaves them behind. So, Let me just say this. One of the most amazing conversations I've ever had, and I'm so grateful that you're here. I mean that. I'm grateful that you're here. I feel like you're speaking directly to our country. Um, what is the difference between the people who go along, which is the majority, it sounds like, and the smaller percentage who decide, no, I'm going to say what I believe is true no matter what? What, what makes people to decide to take one path or the other? And can you predict it ahead of time? No, you can't. From the 19th century onwards, from, uh, as, uh, from the moment... Psychologists have been studying this, the, the phenomenon of mass formation. It has been remarked and observed time and time again that every time a mass emerges in a society, there is a small group who doesn't go along with it. But this small group is extremely diverse and heterogeneous. Yes. And nobody seems to know what connects these people. I've noticed. Wh which characteristic these people share. But in one way or another, they all make this fundamental 
decision, a decision that cannot be reduced to anything else. They make this decision to choose for truth speech instead of choosing the easy way and going along with the narrative where everybody believes in, but which of which everybody actually knows that it is utterly absurd and unethical. So, because the mass formation, you know, that's very interesting. The reason why people buy into the narrative that leads to mass formation is not because they think that the narrative is correct. Not at all. The reason why they buy into the narrative is because it leads to this new social bond. Because it makes them feel... Because everybody else is doing it. Because they don't want to be seen as the fringe... They don't want to be seen as an outsider. They want to belong, which again is why they used, we're all in this together. Because it doesn't matter to them. Right or wrong means nothing. They want to belong. They want to be in the cool club. That's why the media does what they do. It's a popularity contest. That's what the media does. That's exactly their job. It's to reach the populace, to, the, the popular, to be the most popular. And, and that's what they do. And then they shame and ridicule and label the, the rest of us who still think critically, who still want the truth and demand it. And thank God we exist. Connected again. Because loneliness is the most painful state. We don't know it, but it is like that. We don't realize it, but it is like that for a human being. And it wants to escape. It wants this new social bond. And the reason why, the people, why people buy into it is because it leads to all these psychological advantages. It, gives, it couples the, the anxiety to an object. It, it provides an object at which people can direct their frustration and aggression. It, uh, it leads to this new connectedness. So that's the reason, this new social bond and the effective advantages is the reason why people continue to go along with the narrative no matter how absurd it becomes. We could even say more. It's just the same like people in a football stadium uh, all sing the same song, not because they think it's the most beautiful song in the world. No, it's because the song connects them with the other people. And um, so, and, and you could even say more, the more absurd uh, the measures become, for instance, the corona measures, the more they will be applauded by this part of the population that is really in the grip of the mass formation, simply because the measures have the function of a ritual. And what is a ritual? Ritualistic behavior is always behavior that has no pragmatic meaning and that demands a sacrifice from the individual. A sacrifice through which the individual shows that the collective is more important than itself. So people, without knowing it, we live in a time in which we think the, the, the materialist human man in the world believes that rituals have no meaning and no function, but they are essential for us. And in totalitarianism, without knowing it, people engage completely in rituals, but they don't realize it. And these rituals are rituals of dead. People sacrifice, blindly sacrifice everything just to escape their profound feeling of social atomization, to escape their profound feeling of loneliness and disconnectedness. It's a kind of suicidal ritual that is committed. And th that's exactly why many people expected that if the rituals became, if the corona measures became more absurd, that people would start to wake up. But that usually didn't happen. No. No, simply because people don't understand that unconsciously 
these measures have the function of a ritual. And the, uh, the more absurd they are, the pure they, re they, 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 they fulfill their function exactly. of a ritual. That's yeah? exactly right. The more unlikely, the more compelling. Yeah, indeed. So then you have to get, I mean, I think this is, uh, again, one of the most amazing conversations I've had uh, ever. But it does raise the question of motive. Like, why, why did Robespierre do that? Why did Lenin do that? Why did Hitler do that? Why did our own government, not all of whom are evil, a lot of good people, why did they do this? Yes, well, we have answered the question, I think, why the population goes along with the narrative, yes. because there are all these psychological yes, problems yes, and yes. they are solved by the, by the mass summation. But the second question is, why does the elite do it? Yes. And, and, and I think throughout the last few hundreds of years, we have seen two things uh, developing alongside each other. On the one hand, uh, the population uh, got in a state where it became more and more vulnerable for mass summation. And this simply has to do with our mechanist, rationalist view on man in the world. Something in our rationalist scientific ideology disconnects people from their social natural environment. That's what I describe in detail, really in detail, in the first five chapters of my book. I describe how it, I describe how it, how it is our obsession with rational understanding, our delusional belief that the mystery of life, the essence of life, can be understood and reduced to the categories of, categories of our own rational thinking. It's that delusional belief of the human being that disconnects it from its environment more and more and more and more. And that's exactly the reason there was more and more disconnectedness in the population. That led to the mass formation, which became stronger and stronger and stronger, and in the end made it so strong that totalitarian states could, states could emerge. But at the same time, another process happened at the level of the elite. This mechanist, rationalist view on, the man, or view on man and the world created a new elite. An elite which rationally tried to understand the uh, psychological processes in a society and then used this rational understanding to manipulate and control the population. And that's why Immediately after the French Revolution, that means after the fall of the Ancien Régime in France, yes. immediately we saw the emergence of modern indoctrination and propaganda. Napoleon was the first one who established a bureau d'opinion publique, uh, a kind of office for propaganda. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, like 100 years later, we saw already these enormous propaganda machineries of the, of the First World War. And it became worse in the Second World War. And yes, now it it's even much, much, much more worse. Our, our entire public space is saturated with indoctrination propaganda constantly. Simply because, it's strange, if you read the works of the founding fathers of indoctrination propaganda, such as Lippmann, Trotter, Bernays, you hear how these people think in the following way. They say, well, since modern democracy, the political leaders are not true leaders anymore. They have to be elected, meaning that they have to follow the, the masses. So they can never control the masses. And at that moment, they decided, and you can read this literally in the works of, of the people I just mentioned, Lippmann, Trotter, Bernays. At that moment, these guys decided, we have, we need constantly to manipulate the masses, or otherwise they will govern the country and not the politicians or not, not yes, us. So right. the elite elite uh, relied more and more and more on endocrination, propaganda, manipulation, psychological operations, uh, brainwashing and so on of the population just to manipulate.
I've been saying that for a while now. We have this enormous deficit in leadership, uh, not only federally, uh, but provincially and municipally, where all of these politicians lead from the rear, right? So the media, the propagandists uh, set the narrative. So everybody's all in it together and everybody agrees, except for a few of us. And the politicians come in from behind and do what the masses have just been indoctrinated to promote or to push. So the politicians, because they want to keep their well-paid position, they want to keep their pensions, they want to get a pension, they're not going to go against the masses. They're not going to actually lead from the front. They're going to lead from the rear. They're going to use focus groups they're going to use internal polling to guide them because the people are the ones who have been indoctrinated through propaganda, through narrative building, through the media, propagandists paid by the government to establish that. And the politicians, none of which are willing to actually lead because it'll cost them their job. They don't want to do the right thing because it'll cost them their job. So they're just going to do what's been established by the media, by the propagandists. And that's the biggest problem we have in this country is lack of leadership, lack of people willing to stand for what's right and defend what's right, even if it's unpopular. It's it's that's what we need. That's what's necessary. And uh, you know, un until we until we understand that, <coughs> we're going to be stuck in this mess for a while. Manipulate the masses uh, from behind to subvert uh, democracy to end the promise of democracy. Yes, of course, is the of course, of rule. course, of course. That's a problem. Yeah, exactly. So why do they do it? Well, why do they do it? You know, some, that, and that question should be answered, I think, in a very nuanced way. Many people think that totalitarianism is all about power and that it's all about the money. And to a certain extent, that's true. But the ultimate motivation of totalitarian leaders is always ideological in nature. Yes. Believe me, it's ideological. Like, Stalin actually believed yes. in Marxism. Of course. And he wanted to sacrifice everything, all his money and all his power, if he could just uh, reshape society according to his... Uh, his Marxist ideas. That's so typical for totalitarian leaders. They want to sacrifice everything. And they actually believe it, though. They, 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 they usually don't believe the narratives they use, but they believe the ideology blindly. So, like in this case, I think here in our, in, in our situation, for me, the ideology at work is a technocratic transhumanist ideology. Yes. And in order to impose this ideology to, the, to, the, to society, uh, uh, they use, of people use, the, the, the elite uses, the large global institution uses all kinds of narratives to convince, to try to entice the people to go along with this ideology. And these ideologies, well, the, these narratives are like the climate narrative or, or, uh, or uh, the, 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 the terrorism narrative or the corona narrative. And 
usually the, the, the totalitarian leaders usually don't believe, they, they fanatically believe in their, their ideology. They really believe that their technocratic transhumanist ideology will create like a new paradise for the human being. But they usually don't believe the narratives they use. Right. They, they, they believe so blindly and fanatically in their ideology that they think it is justified to lie, cheat, and manipulate the population, to convince them, to accept uh, uh, the, all these uh, ideological changes they, have, they try to impose to society. So we have to distinguish, I think, if you ask the question why they do so, in the end, I really believe they do so because they believe they have this, this obsessional drive to impose their ideological fiction to a society. That's the, 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 the root cause, I think, or the root motivation of totalitarian leaders. And I know that's not very popular. Most people... So I need to have a chat with this guy to let him know what they want to achieve, what, they, what their goals are um, in all of this. And it is about control. It is about the hoarding of resources. It is about global governance. You can tell that this is an element that he probably hasn't researched and hasn't studied. Uh, but there is an end game. There is an ultimate goal. And it's all to do with sustainable development agenda, everything. It's all, that's the reason, that's the root cause. That's the reason they're doing this. That's, they, 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 they want to put everything, hyper-centralize everything. And it's the convergence of communism and fascism. That's what I sense or think that he's failing to understand that there's this convergence of ideologies between fascism and communism uh, that they've brought together uh, to achieve the goals of sustainable development because you need both in order to be successful. And this is what they've done. This is how they've merged, uh, you know, after World War II. And, and so he's missing a little bit of that. That is, if he looks at the sustainable development agenda and the 17 goals, uh, he would understand very quickly why they're using COVID, why they're using mass formation psychosis uh, to achieve this. They, it's necessary in order for them to achieve their goals. And of course, how do you create mass formation psychosis? You do it through fear and propaganda. So um, here we are. Prefer to believe that it's all about the money. That no, it's no, all no, about, no. Because I, I, I know some of them, and I no. and I I agree with you a hundred percent that there's a sincerity at the bottom mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. So, how far along is the West in what appears to be this move toward totalitarianism? Well, you know, uh, in 1951, Hannah Arendt uh, said that. We've seen uh, the collapse of uh, fascist uh, totalitarianism, she said, and we will soon witness the collapse, the collapse of communist totalitarianism. But she said, a new totalitarianism will emerge, the ultimate totalitarianism, and that is the technocratic totalitarianism, a kind of totalitarianism which is not led by gang leaders such as Stalin and Hitler, but which is led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. And I think... Hannah Arendt wrote... And that is precisely the convergence. The technocracy is a convergence of communism and fascism. That's what technocracy is. And that's exactly where they're taking us.
1951, she wrote that. I mentioned it in my book. And uh, that, that, that technocratic totalitarianism is the ultimate manifestation of the kind of ideology I just referred to, this kind of materialist, mechanist ideology, which believes that the entire universe is like a set of elementary particles, atoms and molecules that all interact with each other in a according to the laws of mechanics. And that can be perfectly understood in a rationalist way. If you start from such um, a view on man and the world, then the logical conclusion is that this universe machine and this uh, machine-like society should be led not by democratically elected politicians, but by technocratic experts who, who possess the the uh, rational knowledge to, um, to, uh, to make the machine run as smoothly as possible. So that's the delusional belief of a technocratic system. It's a, it's a logical consequence of our rationalist, mechanist view on man and the world. That's, uh, as we have to... The real enemy, for me, is not the elite, it's that ideology. That ideology, that rationalist view on man and the world, that on the one hand created a new kind of population which was so vulnerable for mass formation, and on the other hand, created uh, an elite which delusionally started to believe that it could manipulate, cheat, control, try to steer everyone uh, in society. So that at the, at the root cause of the problem is this mechanist ideology, which always presents itself as science, but which has nothing to do with science. If you but how did you, have, I mean, given your job description, mm. I mean, you're a prime candidate for believing that. Everyone in your world believes that. Why don't you believe that? I have no idea. I was never very, I had never a great talent to believe what other people believed. Uh, I, in one way or another, I always um, try to think with my own head. Uh, and I always, I think like, well. What I, did your parents do? Like, what world were you raised in? Why did you, were you told it was important to think uh, I will tell, I will tell you something about my parents. Uh, my father didn't want me to go to university uh, because he said, uh, you will see, he said, the institute that um, pretends to represent the truth in society, uh, you won't find much truth there, he said. And and uh, so I, I decided to go to university uh, against his will. Had he gone to university? No, but he was a, an, uh, he, he, he was a very intelligent person who, uh, who read a lot, really a lot, every day in the morning and the evening. Uh, but who had like a contempt for all kinds of degrees, uh, academic degrees. He said like the only reason why you should gather knowledge is uh, 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 because you have a passion to know, a real passion for knowledge and not because you want to have a certain degree. And he also, uh, in his opinion, a human being had to work with its hands and then also um, uh, read and learn uh, something in its spare I time. I think I would like him. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. So, but then, then, but I went to university, and actually, now that when I became a professor, um, I could understand them more and more. Um, that uh, I'm happy that I went to university, um, but uh, I'm also disappointed, and 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 I don't think that. Uh, well, maybe that holds for applies to society in general, but I don't think that most people are motivated by uh, a search for truth. Uh, uh, no. How um, you become very public with these views 
And the response to them, at least online, has been enormous. Mm. And you become famous in this country anyway. I have no idea how you're regarded mm. in Belgium. But how do your mm. colleagues at the university feel about what you've said? Most react in a very defensive way. Um, I have to say that the, the dean and uh, uh, reassured me that uh, uh, I had the right to express my opinion. Uh, it was clear that they uh, were not happy with it, uh, but I was not fired or something. Um, um, but even before the corona crisis, uh, well, most people at the university were, were already angry with me just because I, I exposed the problems with research in a way that uh, most of them didn't like. Um, um, so for me, uh, I was well prepared for the corona crisis <laughs> in many respects. Uh, I was used to to swim against the tide. Uh, I, I, uh, I, uh, oh. So everything about, or virtually everything about, our response in the West to corona has been exposed as Incorrect, at best, fraudulent, at worst, mm -hmm. right? So we, we know how wrong everybody was. Mm -hmm. Does that change the public's mind? I don't think so. Maybe for a small percentage of the, of the people, it changes their mind. But most of them, uh, in a strange way, uh, will continue to buy into the narrative. And they will continue to buy into it because of ego and pride. They've yelled and screamed at us for well over two years, almost three years. And for them to actually admit that they were wrong uh, is something they just can't do. Because too much is relying on it. Too much is dependent on it. Like their credibility is completely smashed. They'll never admit it. They'll never open up to that. Uh, just like the politicians will never admit it. They'll never open themselves up for that kind of exposure. Because they're liable. They'll never admit it. You'll never see a politician go to the microphone and say, yeah, I made a mistake. That was the wrong thing to do. Because he'll be held responsible. Probably end up going to prison. So they will collectively, as they did when they were imposing the tyranny, they will collectively defend themselves and the collective and the blob that denigrated, ridiculed, labeled, vilified us, even though we were right. You'll never see it. Pride and ego are two of the strongest emotions or, or feelings that people have. They just, they absolutely, especially in this time of narcissism and, and self-absorption and, you know, uh, you'll never see it. You'll never see it. You'll never get the apologies. You'll never get the, the, the responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean we won't get our accountability um, because as we start to move away from this, more and more people, while not admitting it publicly, will understand that they were wrong and, and come over 
to the right side of history. Uh, it's that's just the process. And as these globalists move more and more with this agenda, and more people's lives are affected negatively, uh, more and more will quietly step over to the right side of history. <laughs> but they're not going to do it publicly. I'll tell you that much. Pride and ego is very strong. For the reasons that I, that I just mentioned. And then, and then the problem is that there's this phenomenon of mass formation. Um, well, um, mass formation, the cause of mass formation is loneliness. But mass formation itself, if you... Uh, think about the mechanism that I just explained, because it sucks all this energy away from the social bond, creates even more loneliness. Yes. And that uh, puts society in a condition where it is even more sensible, more vulnerable for mass formation. So if one large-scale mass formation emerges, there is a good chance that a second one will emerge, which might even, uh, which might be even more powerful. So, and if we really want to get rid of this process of mass formation, uh, we really will have to do something. We really have to move beyond this rationalist view on man and the world. I mean it. That's the ultimate cause. As long as we continue to believe that we can reduce the mystery of life around us to our rational understanding, we will continue to disconnect from our environment and we will continue to be vulnerable for mass formation. So, so what is the accurate position? If, if we're telling our leaders are telling themselves, I can fully understand people... They're merely collections of atoms, and I can guide them toward utopia. What should be our attitude toward people? Like, what's the correct way to view? We will have to, we will have to educate them in such a way that they start to see that um, that um, uh, that they start to develop the capacity to connect to the world in a different way. I, I, will, I will quote René Tom, one of the most famous uh, mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founders of complex dynamical systems theory. He said, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way, and he was a scientist, a top scientist, uh, uh, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. <laughs> and the rest of reality, we can only understand by empathically resonating with it. And what René Tom said there, he by empathically resonating with it. So he, he, he differentiated between two different uh, kinds of knowledge, a rational knowledge and a kind of resonating empathic yes. knowledge yes. that happens about, around us. And there were so many traditions in which, in which they were aware of the differentiation. For instance, the samurai tradition in Japan said that if you learn the martial arts or no matter what other art or no matter what other craft, their first is the rational technical um, uh, aspect of it. First, you learn techniques, which you can understand in a rational way. But when you practice these techniques for a long time, you will start to develop something else, something that cannot, something that transcends all rational understanding. You will start uh, to, 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 to develop a certain feel with the art you practice. And that's and, and, and everyone who learns a craft knows this. First, you can try to understand rationally what you have to do, but slowly you start to feel what you have to do. And that's the moment where you start to resonate with what you are doing. It's this resonating knowledge, which is so important, which also is this resonating knowledge, which makes you feel the object that you're 
making in a craft or which makes you feel the art that you're performing or that makes you feel the object that you're studying studying in a scientific study and so on. And it's as soon as you're connected in this way with the object, you start to get in touch with the eternal principles of humanity and with the eternal ethical principles of our existence as a human being. And it are these principles that can be the true cornerstone of a human living together, a really fruitful human living together. Now, since a few centuries, we believe that rational knowledge should be the cornerstone of our human living together and of our existence as a human being. That's an illusion. Rational knowledge is always extremely relative and never really touches the real. Rational knowledge circles around the real. Are you guys listening to this? It's, sorry, this is just... What you're saying is, is the truest thing. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting excited. No, no. Yes. Well, Rational knowledge cannot touch the truth of human experience. I think that's what you just said. I, that's what I said. Yeah. Nobody acknowledges that. Mm. Why? Because we... Because the, it's the, the illusion of complete rational understanding is so enticing for a human being. It makes him believe that he is almighty. It makes him believe that he will be able to explain everything, that he will be able to understand everything, that he, that he will be able to manipulate everything, to control everything. It makes him believe that he will be able to live forever, to live eternally. And, and, and eternal happiness, if you read the books of someone like Yuval Noah Harari, then you see uh, this... But this transhumanist ideology, which is only the contemporary version of the mechanist ideology, really believes. It believes that man can become God. That's the problem. Yes. Through rational understanding. And, and that's, it's, of, of course, it's extremely enticing for a human being to believe that. But at the same time, it's what destroys life. Because the essence of life and all seminal scientists have concluded exactly that. They said you can understand rationally something of, of, of reality. Think of people such as Max Planck, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Schröder, Bohr, everyone, all seminal scientists concluded the same. You can understand a certain part of reality rationally, but the essence of life, I give many examples in my book, the essence of life escapes rational understanding, meaning that, strictly logical, meaning that... And that's exactly where we are today, in this society of feelings... I remember my kids coming home from school, even when they were in elementary school, and saying things like, I feel like it's hot out. And I would give them shit every time. I would tell them, don't feel for an opinion. Actually think for your opinion. Don't feel it. Don't feel, don't feel things. Think about them. Use your brain to come up with an opinion. Don't let your feelings develop your opinion. But this is all that our society does now. It's all about feelings. It's how you feel about something. That we all have to respect other people's feelings instead of other people's thought process, other people's critical thinking, it, it has nothing to do. Now it's just about perception. It's about the narrative and how it makes me feel because my feelings are the most important thing here. I, I, I had some 
commie troll message me on Twitter um, and and talk about feelings and her feelings. And, and I was a dinosaur because I actually use my brain um, and critically think. Everybody's stuck in their feelings. Everyone's so narcissistic and and it's about my feelings. No, it's not about you. I don't care what your feelings are. I don't care about your feelings. I care about the truth. I care about reality. Not some perception that some media has put forward so you can feel better based on bullshit. I'm so tired of feelings. Take your heart out of the equation. Use your brain. Use your ability to think critically instead of how it makes you feel. I had somebody try to tell me, Mark, you have to hit their emotions. No, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm going to actually speak the truth. And hopefully it triggers the on button of their brain and that they can start to actually think instead of always feeling their way through life. Oh, God. If you reduce life to rational understanding, you kill the essence of life. Yes. Inevitably. Inevitably. And that's why it's so destructive. That's what we see now. We see a radical destruction of life. Are you a man of religious faith? I was a, an, athe an atheist when I was 18 years old. Uh, from my 16 to my 20 years old. Because just... I, I didn't like it to be an atheist. But I really believed like, okay, what would the universe be? if not a system of material particles, of atoms that interact according to the law, laws of mechanics, there, there is just no possibility that the universe would be some, could be something else. The universe is a material phenomenon, and it can be understood according to the laws of mechanics. It can be strictly rationally understood. And then slowly, while reading all kinds of um, scientific theories, I slowly started to see that the seminal scientists all started from this rationalist ideology, but that they all left it behind, one by one, that they all concluded, no, the essence of the universe is not material in nature. No, you cannot understand. It's not mechanist in nature. If you, like someone like Niels Bohr said, um, the Nobel Prize winning physicist who uh, studied the elementary particles his entire life, he said, Atoms, his entire, he studied atoms, uh, the behavior of atoms his, his entire life. He said, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. And he was dead serious. He said, this, element, this behavior of elementary particles is so intrinsically irrational, transcends all rational understanding, that you need poetry or mystical discourse to, to resonate with it, to, to have a certain feeling with it. And... If, if, for me, it took me until I was 35 years old when I uh, dived deep into the mathematical basis of complex dynamical systems theory before I suddenly started to see that what we call reality, what we call the facts, simply are not rational. They are not rational. Complex dynamical system the theory, and that's a paradox, it's paradoxical, but it's what complex dynamical systems theory shows. This theory shows in a strictly rational way that the essence of life is irrational. Literally, that all complex dynamical phenomena in nature, and that's most phenomena in nature, behave like an irrational number in mathematics. They are 
unpredictable. For instance, a complex dynamical system su such as um, uh, convection patterns and, and, and of turbulence and, and, and fluid or gas uh, can be described by a, by a mathematical formula, by the Navier-Stokes uh, uh, equations. But even with these equations in your hand, you cannot predict one second in advance how this convection pattern will behave. So that just completely breaks the illusion that we would ever be able to really predict life. We will never be able. Our rational understanding uh, uh, stumbles upon an absolute limit. And it's beyond that limit that the essence of life situates. It's the mystery of life transcends rational understanding. And if you continue to build that wall around you of logical reasoning, but because logical reasoning is really building a wall around you, you connect the one logical idea to the other. And in this way, you isolate yourself from your environment. But as soon as you start to be come humble enough, and as soon as you start to become aware of the fact that your rational understanding is limited, it is as if literally all these logical building blocks slide away from each other a little bit, and as if the eternal music of life can go through the holes of the wall and can touch the strings of your body and your soul. And it is at that moment that you can start to resonate with the mystery of life around you, with the eternal spirit of life. And it is exactly at that moment I experienced that in my own life that you can start to tolerate the idea of death and dying. And that's the most elementary disease of our society because we believe, we are so obsessed by rational understanding, we don't know anymore what to do with the idea of death, dying, suffering. Yes, that's right. It's exactly right. And we mm. deny it. We pretend it's not, mm. not real. Mm. And that gives rise to great anxiety, don't you think? Of course. It's, it, it leads to a certain anxiety. It leads to an incapacity to accept that life uh, is risky sometimes, that uh, we might lose something. Uh, it leads to, in a strange way, uh, at the same time, people reduce this life to something complete, or the, 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 the rationalist ideology reduces this life to something completely meaningless, to a biochemical process in our brain uh, or to a biochemical process in our body. And at the same time, we cling to this life as if it is the only thing that counts. So that's a paradox. That's yes, a paradox, it is. Of course. It is. Yes, it is a paradox. So where did it lead you from atheist to what? Um, at least it led me to someone who uh, understands that um, we should be humble enough to uh, know that we will never, uh, that our rational understanding is important, but that it is only the first stage and that it should never be the goal in our lives. There is something that transcends rational understanding that is much more important. And I also believe that it um, made me I will, I will quote Max Planck, also a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, I've spent my entire life in the laboratory investigating elementary particles. And I came to the conclusion that our rational understanding is extremely limited. And that um, in the end, the only thing that counts is something that transcends rational understanding. And in the end, it's a contact with something that uh, we can only resonate with. He said it in a very literal way. And he said that something that transcends all rational understanding, I will be clear, he said, for me, is a personal God. He said, a personal God. 
So he said, in my opinion, uh, in my experience, science ultimately arrives where religion once started, in a contact with something that transcends all rational understanding. And that something, he said, that transcends all rational understanding, for me, is a personal God. That was how Max Planck put it. It is a wonderful book. You should read it. It's so wonderful. It's a wonderful book in which he, sh he shows, or in which, he was, in which he describes an experience that most seminal scientists have experienced. Namely that if you follow reason, and if you really push rational understanding to the limit, you suddenly arrive at the limit, and it's there that the real journey of life starts. Yes. Do you have hope for the West that we can stop what seems inexorable, unstoppable? Of course, yes. I'm realistic, realistic in the short term. I think that the years to come will be difficult years, very difficult years. How? I think that this technocratic system and this rationalist ideology will impose itself um, in a radical way to our society. Everyone who doesn't want to go along with it will be excommunicated, I think. But if this group makes the right choice, and the most important thing is definitely that it should choose to continue to speak out, I mean it, it should choose to we should continue to speak out, no matter how difficult it becomes, uh, it will survive and it will after a while, it will be able to um, deliver the real ethical principles that have the potential to organize a society in which human beings can live a life worthy of a human being. I think that will be, that's what awaiting us, I think. How, how deep is your commitment to saying what you believe is true? I mean, is there any circumstance where you would stop speaking? I don't think so. Period. You know, yes, I don't think so. I, I, what I experienced throughout the last two years um, showed me something that for me is the most important thing in life. It's, I lost some things. I was, to a certain extent, kicked out of some academic commissions and so on because people didn't want to to be in the same uh, academic group as me anymore. But uh, the more I continue to speak out, and I always try to do so in a calm and quiet way, I think that's important. Yeah. You should try to speak out in a, in a sincere and honest way. Um, not because we are convinced that we are the only ones uh, who know the truth or something. No, just because we want to live up to this ethical duty of articulating the words that to the best of your own understanding are true words, sincere words, and honest words. And while I try to do so time and time again throughout the last uh, two years or two and a half years, I started to feel that how a, like a soft, warm power become stronger and stronger in myself. Yeah. And I started to feel that um, we indeed might lose a lot but we shouldn't care too much about that. We should make sure that we don't lose the only thing that is really important for a human being. And it is exactly this feel with the eternal principles of life, with the eternal, you can call it no matter what you want, with what, what transcends all rational understanding, with truth. The truth. That's the only thing that we should uh, really care of and make sure that we don't lose it. All the rest is of secondary importance, I think. 
really a remarkable conversation, and I, I want to thank you for coming all this way to have it with us. And I hope this is seen by, you know, as many people as can possibly see it. Thank you very much for inviting. Well, thank you. Uh, that's hard. So there you have it. Um, he's absolutely right, hundred uh, percent. Things are going to get worse. There is going to be more pain. They will try through radical means to implement the sustainable development agenda, ultimately technocracy. Um, they're not done. They're not finished. It's, we know more is to come because somebody mentioned it. C11 is in the works. They need to shut us up. They need the people who are speaking out who are upsetting the apple cart uh, are having an effect. They need to shut us down. They need to shut us up because they have much more that they want to accomplish. Uh, this is far from over, um, but it's all necessary. And I said this throughout the town hall tours that we did. All of the pain that we've been through all of the pain that we're going through, all of the pain that we're going to go through is all necessary. It's all part of the process of waking up enough people that can actually affect a change in direction. And it's so incredibly important, as tired and frustrated and burnt out as people are, that we just keep going. I'll never stop. I'll never stop. I don't care how many elections I lose. I don't care. My ego is obliterated. I, I, it has nothing to do with my personal um, success in anything. I could care less. This, my duty is to the people of this country and, and, stopping the insanity and we're not going to stop it until enough people are directly affected by it so all of this pain that we're going through is necessary it's all part of the equation it's all part of the process even my own personal pain and losses and attacks and um you know consequences to my business which is my only form of income um it is what it is. It's all part of the process. Um, more and more people, though, are understanding people like me and others, many others. Because we've remained consistent. We've remained true. We've kept our integrity to what we want to achieve. And ultimately, that's defending the values that we all claim to cherish freedom, liberty, sovereignty, justice, equality under the law, prosperity and truth. And uh, I'll never stop. I'll never stop. I'll, I'll die if that's what it takes. Uh, I'll sacrifice my life for Western civilization, for what we know to be true, uh, it is what it is. So the commies, 
you know, when I light their hair on fire and run an election, whether it's locally or federally or whatever, uh, and they come after me, it's, it inspires me. It inspi- my detractors inspire me every time they do shitty things and say shitty things. It inspires me because they show me exactly what I don't want my country to turn into an absolute shithole. I don't want it. We've got everything this country could should be leading the world in prosperity. This country should be is the most beautiful country on the planet, or at least one of them. And we have it all. And and we have to keep it and we have to defend it. And we have to protect it. Or they're gonna take it. They're gonna they're gonna hoard it all. And we'll have and we'll be slaves. And I'm not prepared to give that up. So it is what it is. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit like a birthing process. It hurts like hell, but eventually a beautiful new life will be born. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, I couldn't say it better. Well said. Yes, the dog agrees, but the dog's giving me shit. That's banjo, by the way. It's always banjo. Whenever I'm live and there's a dog barking in the background, it's always banjo. Yeah, hundred percent, Rob. Hundred percent. I, I mean, there's 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 purpose that is far greater than you know my own personal prosperity. There's a sense of duty, a sense of purpose, and that's what people need to survive and to and to thrive is this sense of purpose and and duty to others that that really should inspire people. And the media has pulled that out of people this sense of duty and responsibility and 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 inspiration they it, the media sucks the life out of you it sucks it out of you to make you this dependent uh part of the mob where everyone's dependent on somebody else the government um and it's 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 horrible we we have to get out of this and we will eventually we will and again, all of these things that they're going to attempt to do is all part of the process. It's all part of this awakening. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that just won't wake up until they're directly affected. They don't want Mark Friesen to burst their bubble. Um, they, they'll wait for the consequences of reality to burst their bubble before, you know, they'll stand up. So there's going to be, there's going to be pain. It just is what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, survival of the fittest, we'll make it through it and then we'll build something even better. Yes. Anyways. Uh, so that's it. Yeah. Banjo songs. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. So we have a banjo, we have a rhythm and we have a dobro, um, two border collies, banjo and rhythm. They're been together for a long time. And then the new one is dobro who we just refer to as Dobie. Um, that's our little, you know, musical trio. Uh, yes, they want brainless, soulless automats. Yes, they do. They want slaves. And that's part of masking. Only slaves wear masks. And only people that mindlessly say yes to 
totalitarian, authoritarian dictates um, are good or seen as good. So anyways, I thought it was important to have that, to show that video. I thought it was really good. I think the guy's really smart. Um, and I think he's right uh, in everything that he said. And yeah, there, there might be some criticism, sure. But uh, at the end of the day, I think for the most part, he's bang on. And we should understand this. We should understand why people, why the masses have fallen for this. Um, you know, interesting, when I was a kid growing up, I always wanted to understand, you know, why the Soviets, the Red Scourge, were so successful at at uh, bringing in so many people to run a revolution. I always wanted to know why Germans were so susceptible to what Hitler and the fascists were doing and the Nazis were doing. And again, they're all so far left um, to inspire the nation to be so afraid, to commit, to get people to commit what they what they committed. Uh, and this idea that, you know, a government uh, is the answer is insanity. The individual is the answer. You are the answer to your problems. You and the the people you surround yourself with, your family, that's the answer to everything. You'll figure it out. You'll, you got it. Responsibility, hard work, accountability, all of these things. Uh, you're the answer. The individual is the answer. The collective is not the answer. Every time the collective gets in power, every time the blob gets power, hundreds of millions of people die. It's just how it is. So stop it. Stop running scared of communists. Call them communists every chance you get. Vilify them, label them, ridicule them. Whatever it is you have to do. Communists are our enemy. Fascists are our enemy. They're all the same. Communists like to say the fascists are way over here on the right, that we're all Nazis. We're not. We just happen to like freedom. Less government, small government. Um up to the point of no government. Uh, that's us over here on the right. The fascists and the communists are both together over there on the left. Call them out every opportunity you get. Stand up for what you believe in. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of the fact that you love and cherish freedom and liberty and justice. Stop allowing these people to run over us. Stand and defend. Do it loudly. Do it proudly. And ultimately, we win. Anyways, that's it for tonight. Thanks, folks. We'll uh, catch you next. Sorry, I'll just get that out of the way there. And... We'll bring this back up. So have a good rest of your night. Have a good rest of your week. Uh, I'll probably be on again here in the next few days. Uh, until then, love each and every one of you guys. Um, be brave. Be courageous. Stand for what you believe in and don't let anybody push you around. All right. And remember, globalism bad, nationalism good.
All right. Ciao for now.